Hello, and welcome to Curious Business. I'm Kate Crawshaw, and if you're a little bit like me and love looking at how a little curiosity can lead to doing great things at work, you are in the right place. In today's episode, I chat with Erica Edmans about some amendments to the Victorian Occupational Health and Safety Regulations, which will be enforced from July 1 this year, 2022. Not my normal thing that I get that excited about, I have to tell you. But Erica is going to explain the implications of these amendments for both employers and their employees. And we'll also discuss and dive a little deeper, exploring the possibility about how these regulations may be actually gifting us the platform for better conversations around workplace culture. I'm excited by that. So, who is Erica Edmans? Erica is a lawyer, a workplace investigator, mediator, and Director of Inclusion at Work, a Melbourne-based diversity and inclusion consultancy. She includes the role of President of KidSafe in her numerous board positions and is a genuine, cool person. I love chatting with her and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hello, it's Kate Crawshaw here and welcome to Curious Business. I am very delighted to have with me Erica Edmans. Director of Inclusion at Work, Chairperson, Consultant, Workplace Investigator, Person Extraordinaire. Mediator. Mediator. Yes, you can always introduce yourself. (laughs) That's fine. You're doing a wonderful job. Thank you very much, Ms. Crawshaw. How are you? And a delight, delight to be here. It is a delight to be here. And it's a special day because I actually printed out Occupational Health and Safety regulations and amendment to them. And I actually read them really nearly all the draft regulations. So yes, the new draft regulations, I actually read them. (laughs) Would you be able to give a quick overview for those people who don't even know what OH&S regulations or occupational health and safety regulations are and what the amendment is? Sure. So these are proposed amendments, proposed new regulations. In Victoria, the Occupational Health and Safety Act, which has been around for a very long period of time, is very clear in prescribing an employer's obligation and also employees. It's important to note employees have a duty to provide a workplace that's safe and without risk to health for their fellow workers, as much as an employer has an obligation to provide, as far as practicable, a workplace that is free from risk to health and safety. And that includes psychosocial health. It has always included psychosocial health. When I started practicing so many years ago now, we still had fax machines. The injuries and things that we were looking to protect people from were predominantly physical harm, physical risks. Over the last seven plus years, maybe eight years, there's been a shift to focus more on the psychosocial or psychological harm caused to people by unsafe workplaces. So in many respects, the Regulations don't change existing obligations. It's an obligation to, so far as practicable, provide a workplace that is safe and without risk to health. What these proposed regulations seek to do, I think, is bring risks posed by sexual harassment and sexual misconduct, bring risks posed by poor workplace practices, poor job design, and poor workplace systems to the front of an employer's mind to say, 
you've got to actually look at these risks too, because all of the research globally tells us if we bring a fit, healthy, resilient individual into a workplace that is psychologically unsafe and that has risks and hazards, basically one or two things will happen. That person leaves because they've had a gutful and they don't want to put up with it, or they become sick. The basic premise has always been there. What these proposed, and they are still proposed, regulations seek to do is to give a little bit more clarity around what those risks are and the obligations an employer has to satisfy those risks, but it probably does it with a fairly blunt instrument. What did you think of said draft regulations? From a human perspective, from someone who works with a percentage of organizations that are psychologically unsafe, Mm. when I see the impact on behavior. I'm really excited about the regulations. I'm super excited about it. As an employer, I could also feel totally overwhelmed by mm. looking at these because from what I can understand, and I'll get you to explain this much better in a moment, you know, these, these regulations that are a lot about people, I would have thought. And it's quite tricky to control, identify risks of people and control them. And to your point, it can be very challenging and difficult for people to seek to control behaviours of individuals at work. There are things you can do and there are ways in which we can improve safety and psychological safety. But on my reading of the regs as presently drafted, I'm not 100% convinced that it will do everything that it seeks to do. And I can understand why a number of employers would be quite worried. And one other thing to point out, these proposed regs employ, sorry, apply to employers with 50 or more staff. Uh, so not everyone will be required to comply with the regs, which again, if you're looking at something like psychological injury is interesting because we know full well that psychological injury and harm occurs in workplaces with 50 and fewer employees, just as it does with those workplaces with 50 or more employees. I'm just thinking about my history as a waitress at university, for example, mm. all those kind of um, situations where people won't be protected by these new amendments. You know, I might've had a manager who was very great, used to roster me on, but the people that, that I worked with, all men, was in an environment with lots of drunk people. Now, mm. if I had, if that workplace has got under 50 employee, employees, there wouldn't be the same process about risk assessment or reporting. There would be in terms of the existing Occupation Health and Safety Act, yes. These specific regs, if there were under 50 employees, no. The difference in terms of these employee, the, sorry, the difference in terms of these regs, as best I understand them, and for those listening out there, yes, I am a qualified lawyer, but I don't practice at the moment. So this is first principles. One of the key differences here is that these regs seek to bring in and define as psychosocial hazards, things like sexual misconduct and sexual harassment, low job control, poor support. So it's identifying some of those things that traditionally we have known pose risks to individuals in workplaces and making it quite explicit. So it said for, for some organizations that already have very sophisticated occupational health and safety systems in place where they do the assessments, they identify the risks and they have controls in place to manage those risks. This probably won't be very different. 
for those organizations that are not very sophisticated, it will be quite different. And specifically in terms of the example you just gave, young female waitress in predominantly male work environment, that's an absolute classic definition of a workplace that poses a risk of harassment and sexual harassment from occurring. And those factors you identified, um, and let's assume that the majority in leadership roles are male and that the majority of the staff working are younger female. If you have that demographic, you have risks and that young women working in that environment are at greater risk of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct than if there were significant numbers of women in those leadership positions as well. So that example is a classic for absolutely, there is going to be a risk. We need to identify what those risks are, and then we need to put in place measures to control and manage those risks. It's interesting because often the people that are asked to identify the risks and put those controls in place could be the perpetrators Mm -hmm. of, um, of those issues. So it'll be interesting to see those organizations that have their own blind spots to be able to identify these risks. What does that mean for them? means they'll be in trouble. I think it's interesting because taking a step backwards a little bit and having a look at a psych, what is a psychosocial hazard at work, for example, it's basically anything that increases the risk of work-related stress and potentially causing a mental health injury. And there are a number of things which have been identified and Safe Work Australia has got a great resource for people that are interested to have a look at those. But We've known about them for quite a long period of time. So what this is seeking to do is make clear what some of those risks and some of those hazards are by naming them. And they include, as I said before, violence and aggression. So again, if you work in an environment in which you deal with staff and certainly frontline healthcare workers, transport workers, and people in retail and hospitality over the last two years will tell you the instances of violence and aggression directed towards them has increased exponentially. So if you work in that environment, if you own and run a business where you are delivering services like that, you have risks. So under the existing Occupation Health and Safety Act, you still, you have those duties to, as far as practicable, provide a workplace that's safe and without risk to your staff. What this is doing is making it really explicit that occupational violence, bullying, sexual harassment and harassment, traumatic events, so ongoing exposure to traumatic events, remote or isolated work, Conflicts at work, poor relationships with management are all psychosocial risks. So if those things are happening, and regardless of this specific regulation, if those things are happening, you have an existing duty to put in place systems, processes, tools to assess those risks put controls in place to manage or eliminate those risks and then review it. So it's really going back to the standard four-step to prevention approach that would have been taken by most organizations, again, I suppose more sophisticated organizations, to managing physical risks. So identify the risk, it's assess the level of the risk, put in place controls to eliminate where possible that risk and then review and maintain. The other thing that these proposed regs do is include an additional reporting requirement and also a requirement emphasizing the requirement to consult with your employees about what some of those controls might be, where some of those risks might be. 
So going back to your point about those in leadership positions, if they're perpetrating and engaging some of this behavior, may not see it. If the organizations are consulting with their staff by surveys, by um, feedback or focus groups, they will be able to identify those risks. And I think that's one of the benefits for this, of this approach. It does take an holistic approach. Yeah, that's really interesting and still challenging because when you bring up risks like poor relationships, mm -hmm. conflict and bullying, mm -hmm. and we need to identify, assess and control these risks, is this down to doing psychometric testing on every person that walks in the door? A lot of the work that you and I have done as well, and that I do in the inclusion field you hear the term culture and cultural fit used a lot. That's often a euphemism for employ somebody just like me. There is a risk when hearing you ask that question that this might again lead people to just recruit somebody like me because I know they will fit and there'll be less issue and it'll be easier because I'll have fewer challenges with them. That's not what this is designed to do. And it would be a travesty if it did happen. I think employment and employing individuals, employing people is a challenge in and of itself. However, anyone who walks into our organization as an employee has a right to expect that they will be safe at work. And we've known again for a long period of time, for a long period of time, actually, and I'm trying to think since when I know, and I, it's got to be about the last five or six years, that over, I think it's 9% of serious workers' compensation claims are related to mental health conditions. That if the claim relates to a mental health claim, then the recovery times take longer, the costs to the individual and the employer are higher, and it requires more time of work for the sorry more time away from work for the person with the injury, which means psychological injury and mental health injuries are really important and shouldn't continue to be ignored, which is what happens in some organisations, not many, but in some it does. Psychological injury claims generally longer recovery times more time away from work for the person who's ill or injured, higher costs to them and to the employer. So we've known that for a long period of time. And I think the other thing that we've seen with the introduction of workplace manslaughter legislation in Victoria and with other legislative changes is a recognition that employers do have an obligation to provide a safe working environment. And that part of an unsafe working environment relates not just to the machinery that you use or the desk at which you sit, but the way in which people relate to each other and bullying, sexual harassment, discrimination, conflict, poor management practices, overload, poor job control, all have a significant impact on an individual's mental health. So whilst you're in a workplace, you have a right to have your mental health and your well-being protected just as much as you have a right to have your physical well-being protected. But also remember, again, it's not just the employer. Employees have these obligations for each other as well. And a lot of the work, again, that we, we have done around conversations and teaching people to have conversations is early intervention. And if people can feel safe and confident to have a conversation with somebody they're working with to say, you know what, I actually don't appreciate it when you speak to me like that, or I don't like being called love or doll. My name is Erica. Please use my name. If people felt comfortable and confident and capable and skilled to have those early conversations, a lot of the bigger issues and bigger problems that we see often won't occur. 
So whilst I can understand why people are quite freaked out and terrified by the proposed introduction of these regs, and I think at this point they're still mooted to be introduced on the 1st of July, 2022, I think a lot of it, if we bring it back to first principles of common sense and integrating what organisations are already doing to manage mental health concerns at work and to comply with their existing obligations, they will do that. Problem is for a lot of people, or for a lot of organisations, sorry, they haven't drawn the link between sexual harassment, sexual misconduct and psychosocial harm. And I think that for me is one of the interesting things to see how that will shift and change, bringing stuff that has traditionally been dealt with under the discrimination regime into quite clearly into the occupational health and safety regime. I'm flabbergasted that is actually an issue that people can't identify that sexual harassment and sexual discrimination is not a psychosocial harm. Hmm. How is that in this day and age, Erica? Generalizing, a lot of people don't see, understand, identify, or have different definitions and different expectations as to what type of con behavior constitutes sexual harassment or sexual misconduct. There are a number of programs, courses that I run and get told people have done the training, often on online training in relation to bullying, sexual harassment, and they all know what it is. When you actually get in there and have conversations with people, no, they don't know what it is or what it looks like. Or if they've worked in an environment for a period of time where certain types of behaviours are tolerated and accepted, that is their norm. They no longer see behaviour that they may have called sexual harassment previously. They no longer recognise it as that because they've just become so used to it. It has just become their norm. So. If you have someone like me coming in to say, when you see sexual harassment or bullying, it's easy, just intervene and have a conversation, but you don't actually know what it is you're looking for. How can you have the conversation? How can you intervene early? Because that's just what it is around here. So I do understand the challenges with trying to identify types of behavior. And for me, you know, it's not a complex or difficult question. There's a very clear definition in all of the states and territories in Australia and nationally about behavior that constitutes sexual misconduct or sexual harassment. The difficulty is when you bring people with different life experiences, different expectations, different lenses, different cultures, different worldviews into a workplace, they will have different views about what constitutes sexual harassment, about what constitutes bullying. Oh no, I was just being direct and blunt with you. I was actually being quite respectful because I was giving you very clearly my opinion. The other person sitting there going, oh my Lord, that is so incredibly rude. So it, I think it comes down to creating an environment, again, going back to your point at the beginning of this podcast, creating an environment where people feel safe and confident and have the skills to have a respectful, assertive conversation early, to intervene early, to identify when behavior is occurring that is not respectful, not safe, and to call it out. And also not just rely on the team leader or manager to do that, but understand that I have a responsibility to my other staff members to call out inappropriate behavior as well. Part of the challenge with that is the power imbalance. Often it's difficult for me to call out behavior if I feel unsafe or I think I'm going to be victimized. And again, there are provisions within the regs and the legislation to try to stop that from happening. But it's not really surprising that most people don't complain 
when they see sexual harassment or bullying occurring because they're worried about the ramifications. Again, lack of psychosocial safety at work. It's, I'm pausing because there's so much to be said and it's so interesting. And one thing for me is actually we can systematize mm-hmm. and define the expectations of behavior early. Yep. If we talk about it. But absolutely. When you gave the list earlier of, of some of the psychosocial hazards that, mm-hmm. that in the amendments, and I'm, I'm fascinated with something like high work demands. So both you and I have spent long, much of our career in professional service organizations or working with professional service organizations where there is an implicit expectation that you will work, work many hours of the week. Yes. How I'm fascinated to see how this amendment will be applied in those situations where there are always unrealistic job demands. It's an important, it's an interesting question because one of the other things we know is you can put two different people into the same situation and one will cope fine with it and one won't. And one will say the demands are excessive. I am overloaded. I feel stress and pressure due to excessive work demands. I've got a high workload. I've got deadlines I can't meet. And I'm really struggling and somebody else will say, bring it on. I'm fine. I love it. What the regulations seek to do is to identify psychosocial, specific psychosocial hazards and say, don't just accept this as normal. And if these things are happening, then you need to have in place a system for managing, controlling and eliminating those risks. And it's hard when, as I said before, some of those risks might harm some people, but not others. So I think part of it, again, comes down to a whole range of different factors. But one as well is if you are just throwing people into a role where you've had, for example, three or four people in that particular job or role leave or become unwell, if you knowingly put somebody else into that role, that's a risk, that's a problem. But if you then take a step back and say, and certain types of work will fall into this category, there's high emotional demands. Let's look at some of the uh, organizations that we've worked with, fire and frontline health workers and paramedics and doctors and some lawyers as well. There's high emotional demands. It's really difficult and challenging to manage some of those emotional aspects. There might be a lot of role ambiguity. I don't know who I'm supposed to take instructions from. Is it this person over here or this person over here? Because I've got dual reporting lines or I've got so many competing demands at the moment in my role. I have no idea and no capacity now to make a decision as to which one is my priority. It might also be that you have very limited job control, which back in legal practice is one of the biggest challenges certainly I found and a lot of people find there. You have very little ability to influence what happens in your work environment and very limited ability to make decisions about how your work is done or when you get your work. It just seems to constantly flow. So if you have a number of those factors present, And if you add into that lack of supervisor support, lack of coworker support, because it's a very competitive environment, you're going to get people getting, becoming ill. But a lot of the challenge has been, we just accept that this is how it is. And we don't step back and look at things like, how do I design the role? In my role as HR director in one of the firms I worked with, I would get asked to just recruit me somebody else because I've lost this person. And then you would often be given a PD which had a number of things listed in the PD and then two or three additional things added for this particular recruiting role. Rather than sitting back and asking the question, which I would start asking, 
what are the key requirements of this role, the really fundamental key requirements of this role, and what are the skills and attributes that are required for the person who's going to fulfill that role. Because so often we just grab the last PD, add our stuff in, and then expect somebody else to sit in that and then get surprised when they leave as well because we haven't actually addressed any of the underlying system issues that are causing that overload. Yes, it's hard in some respects, but there's a lot of guidance out there from Safe Work Australia on the website as well from WorkSafe in Victoria that help you identify some of these key psychosocial hazards and factors. So emotional demand, role ambiguity, role conflict, role overload, relationship conflict, lack of job control, praise and recognition. So from a positive protective factor, are we doing that? Justice and fairness. So I, do I perceive that the organization is making decisions using fair and transparent process? Lack of workplace bullying, lack of work-related violence and aggression. So if you can start to look at some of these things, identify if they are happening in your workplace and then put in place some processes and systems to reduce and eliminate those risks, that will take you a long way to doing it. But it's challenging in some of those organizations because I can imagine the response. How do I stop people from being traumatized when the work we deal with is highly traumatic? I think it's exciting for people who are keen to find drivers mm to bring on this change faster in organizations where the psychosocial risks weren't as explicit or where people didn't want to acknowledge what they were before. Mm -hmm. I think there's a real opportunity now to, to bring an impetus to bring this to the table, possibly faster than it normally would have. If I was someone who felt like that, or I'm an organization who's, I really, we really need to get our risk control ducks in a row. What would mm -hmm. you suggest? Safe work. Australia and a lot of the health and safety people who've been working in this space for a long time would say it's a relatively simple four-step process. I've got to identify what those risks are. These regs now say that sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, one of the key risks. So that's different. And we know that happens in organizations and there are specific risks and things that will contribute to sexual harassment, sexual misconduct occurring in workplace, one of which is gender unequal attitudes. Another is lack of gender diversity in leadership positions. So using that as an example, so we identify those risks. How might we identify where these risks sit? Talk to your staff, talk to your workers, consult with your workers, do your surveys, do your focus groups, inspect your workplaces, go around and have a look at your data and your demographics. Take note of how your workers interact, review reports and records, do all that sort of thing. Um, go and ask the people who are in the roles. Some of them will be already known by people who've been working in this area for a while. It's just using them with a slightly different lens. Once you've identified, then you step two is to assess. So part of that is what might happen to somebody if they were exposed to these particular risks. Let's take again the example of traumatic workforce. If we know that people are going to be exposed to um, a significant trauma ongoing, for example, paramedic or somebody who's working in a call center and taking highly traumatized calls from individuals, then we know that's going to be a risk. So we have in place roster systems. We have in place employee assistance programs. We have in place peer support. We have in place contact officers. We have all those support systems in place around them to make sure that they are not going to be sitting in that particular role so that they get ill or become unwell. We know those battle some of the risks. We may not know what some of those particular uh, risks might be to people 
from a sexual harassment perspective, because again, that hasn't been something that a lot of people have thought about in terms of the occupational health and safety legislation for a while. So let's have a look at what might happen there. And again, put in place step three, some controls to minimize or eliminate the risk from those occurring. Going back to your point earlier on, possibly the only way that we could eliminate in some respects bullying or sexual harassment and sexual misconduct is if we didn't employ people. That's not going to happen. So part of it is being really clear about what our expectations in terms of standards of behavior are. We often focus on the negative. Let's focus on the positive. Let's talk about as a team, what does respect look like? And understand that's going to be different for different people. And that's okay. And just because somebody has a different view to you doesn't mean they're wrong and you're right or vice versa. It means you've just got a different view. So listen to understand. Coach people, train people in how to have conversations, how to be an ally, how to act, be an active upstander, understand stereotypes, understand the impact of gender unequal attitudes, train, teach, don't just assume it happens. So that will go through, do a lot to help to minimize and reduce risks. And then the final step is review. So check in, monitor, how are these controls going? Review them, change them, adapt them and amend them if necessary. Uh, it's important that you're ensuring that whatever control measures you have in place are effective. You're not going to know that unless you're measuring. So it, it's really, and then you start again, it's a fairly cyclical process. The other point is to collect your data and use your data. Data is really important. And I was interested to see that the required reporting for the new amendment includes the type of psychosocial hazard involved, the gender mm -hmm. of those involved and a description of the workplace relationship. And I really mm -hmm. hope that information is in some way aggregated and made public in the future because it will be so beneficial for organizations to be able to see the correlations between situational power and all those different kind of biases and impacts and what can happen in those situations. Absolutely, completely agree. And interesting for organizations to see that there is a link between those things and harm occurring. Data is really powerful. Data is really important. And I've heard a number of times when I've sat in front of people, senior people and boards and organizations, they will say, we don't have a problem with sexual harassment here. Look at our complaint numbers. They're so low. The response to that is you have two problems. One, you have complaints happening and two, you don't know where and you don't know anything about where they're occurring. So you can't do anything to resolve the problem. All of the Australian data and it's supported internationally suggests that only 15 to 17% of people who experience sexual harassment, um, sexual misconduct ever lodge a complaint. So looking purely at complaint numbers is not a measure or not a way to identify if you have a problem. What these proposed regs seek to do is to gather data and gather information so you can start to develop some correlations, as you said, between those risk factors and the harm that's actually caused. And also get across the board data to show that if you have lack of gender uh, diversity and if you have power imbalance and if you have some of these other system issues, then people will be harmed. Absolutely. On a final note, Erica, risk management around physical safety, so much of it has been around actual practical training mm -hmm. around how to manage risks. Do you think that we need to see more practical training around managing psychosocial risks? Yes. It is one thing to intellectually understand and identify where there is a risk. It is one thing to intellectually go stand and watch and observe behavior. It is a very different thing to put oneself into the position of then having a conversation and calling out 
behavior. It's a confidence and a capability thing. So yes, we can train capability, but we absolutely need to get the practical, experiential and repeated opportunities for people to safely have uncomfortable conversations. They are uncomfortable conversations, but we can do them and we can do them safely, but people, most of us don't know how to do that. We're not born knowing how to do that. And a lot of the training and development and skills development that is done doesn't teach people how to have these conversations and it doesn't give them an opportunity to practice them in a safe, but still uncomfortable environment. I think it's really essential. And that's one thing, training up on having these conversations and calling things out is going to be applied across, you know, both aspects, physical risk and psycho psychosocial risk across, mm -hmm. across the OHS regulations as well. So looking at that can, I'm going to say kill two birds with one stone, but probably not an appropriate analogy for occupational health and safety. I think that having the conversation is such an important part of helping individuals feel that they have an element of control over their work environment and they feel safe in their work environment, but people won't have these conversations if they don't feel psychologically safe to have them. And they won't have these conversations if they don't feel that they have the personal resources and skills to have these conversations. And they won't have them if they don't feel that they have the personal capacity to have the conversations. So I think it is a, it's a multi-layered approach. And in order to create an environment in which people feel safe to call out inappropriate behavior, that's a whole other podcast that we can talk about, but you have to look at leadership first. Leadership has to role model and absolutely do what they say they are going to do. And you then have to back and support your staff if they do call inappropriate behavior. And for me, I think that's probably the area where there is the biggest challenge. Fascinating. Really interesting if we're going to be looking at leadership and these explicit risks in the future. We do it now, but it's obviously going to be on everyone's risk register. Let's hope so. Fingers crossed. And it'd be interesting to see if these regs do come in their current format um, in another couple of weeks. So let's watch this space. And I look forward to having a chat with you about how we can help organizations and others to manage some of these risks because at the end of the day sort of comes back to the fact that everybody has the right to a workplace that's safe and without risk to health which also means that we have obligations to look out for our fellow workers to make sure that our behavior doesn't pose a risk to anybody else yeah look forward to that chat thank you very much erica i will pop the safe work australia definitions and the other resources that you mentioned mm. in the show notes for everyone and where can people contact you if they would like? If anybody wants to get in touch, please do feel free to reach out or follow me on LinkedIn. You can also drop me an email. The email address is Erica with a C at inclusion at work. And that's inclusion, A-T-W-O-R-K.com.au. And I look forward to hopefully chatting with a few people. Thank you so much, Ms. Crawshaw. It has been a delight and a pleasure as always. Thank you, Erica Edmonds. This Thanks. podcast is now complete. Thanks for making a bit of curious business with me today. I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Crawshaw, or if you're interested in exploring more about courageous conversations and curiosity in your organization, go to Serious Woo. That's serious, W-O-O dot com dot au. And I'll see you next time.